This morning's scripture reading comes from Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the poor, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Edar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. This is God's word. Good morning, Metro Press. Traditionally, uh, Christians all over the world um, observe the days uh, leading up to the Easter celebration uh, with prayer, uh, fasting, and devotional reading. Uh, here at Metro Press during this season, uh, we observe Lent uh, with a series on the book of Esther, right? As scholars and commentaries say, the silent sovereignty of God. Uh, Esther is a, an amazing book uh, that reveals the greater beauty of, of a hidden king who assures of God's active presence no matter our suffering. You know, Esther is going to teach us what it means to live as, as a Christian in a world dominated by people who do not share the same Christian values. So for today and the next few weeks, we're going to go through this brief series uh, introducing us to this time of renewal and new life in the book of Esther. As we get into the sermon series, specifically Esther chapter 3, I'm going to ask that you guys join me in prayer. Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you this morning for your mercies are new. Your life is abundant, Lord God, and our cup overflows. Lord God, as we hear uh, your word this morning, Lord God, we pray, Lord God, that you will convict us. Lord God, you will convict our hearts to what you have to say. And Lord God, I pray, Lord that you will use me, Lord, accordingly to the way you want me to speak. You know my heart. You know my anxieties. You know my fears and my doubts. 
Lord God, I pray, Lord God, that in that, Lord God, your word will speak loudly. Lord God, I desire, Lord God, to be an instrument within the Redeemer's hands. So use me accordingly to your strength. Lord God, may you be present during this time. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, one of the most popular social media apps right now is Snapchat. Snapchat is a billion-dollar company with 100 million daily users. And what Snapchat does is it allows you to share photos and videos with your friends, and it just kind of records the daily ins and outs of your life. But what stands out with Snapchat uh, compared to any other social media app is that the photo self-destructs after it's seen. That after someone sees the photo and video, it disappears. See, Snapchat lives under this idea that things shouldn't be forever. It minimizes the ambitions of a more permanent form of communication. That's why you're more likely to see uh, something more well-crafted, uh, perfectly filtered on your Instagram or Facebook. But on Snapchat, you're more likely to see uh, a god-awful mistake at 3 a.m. with an emojis, emojis that say yes. And nothing wrong with that. Um, and nothing wrong with that. We can use Snapchat. You can follow me, Park underscore Brian. There's nothing wrong with using Snapchat, but the point is that Snapchat is really a reflection of today's society, is it not? See, modern society is so fast-paced where we're encouraged to forget. We're encouraged to move forward. We're encouraged to detach ourselves quickly as possible from anything that is hindering us. And it's this very fast-paced lifestyle that also shapes how you and I handle our despair and our agony. How often do we say, I just want this to be over with? Or how often do we say, I wish I can just press fast forward? Christianity is quite the contrary to the Snapchat way of handling our circumstance. The Psalms is a perfect illustration of how we're to handle our agony. Rather than take it and erase it, the Psalms cause us to wrestle, meditate, and seek God in it. Tim Keller says, Christianity teaches that contra-fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contra-Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra-karma, suffering is often unfair. Contra-secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is purpose to suffering. See, Esther is a book about suffering and how God allows us to persevere in a world dominated by people who do not share the same Christian values. Esther 3, specifically today, is in an account of unjust persecution 
to God's people, and it's because of ultimately one man's sin. So as we go into the topic of suffering this morning, we have three points. The shame, the hope, and the honor. First point, the shame. Read verse 1 with me. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. So what's the after these things? Let's recap a little bit. Esther is the Jewish woman who becomes the queen of Persia. And she's assisted by Mordecai, who is her cousin and guardian. And what we see at the end of Esther 2 is that they uncovered this conspiracy to assassinate King Xerxes. So essentially, Esther and Mordecai are the heroes, right? They saved King Xerxes from assassination. Without Esther and Mordecai, King Xerxes would have been assassinated. So Esther and Mordecai are the heroes in this text. Heroes get rewarded, right? Well, as we begin in Esther chapter 3, about five years past this incident of chapter 2, King Xerxes does not promote Mordecai. Even though Mordecai deserved it, he does not get it. What happens? Rather than Mordecai, King Xerxes uh, rewards a gentleman known as Haman. For unknown reasons uh, to date, but Haman would be promoted the second most powerful position in the empire. Who was Haman? Haman was an, an enemy of the Jews. Verse 1 specifically refers Haman as an Agagite, meaning he's a descendant of Agag, the Malachite, excuse me. Who were the Amalekites? The Amalekites, they were nomadic people who raided Israel from the beginning of history. The Amalekites were a heathen nation. They wanted to destroy the Jews. There's a clear history of hatred between the Jews and the Amalekites. What we see here is that Haman was a descendant of this hatred. So what does he do? Look at verse 8 and 9 with me. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the people in all the provinces of the kingdom where customs are different from those of all other people and who do not obey the king's law. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. What we specifically see in verse 8 and 9 what we specifically see in Esther chapter 3 is this persecution. Persecution, which is the direct issue in uh, Esther 3, is a, remote, is a result of Haman's ignorance, his nationalistic pride, and superiority. And it's causing the Jews suffering. It's because of Haman's hatred, his pride, his superiority that's leading to in an entire race to be devalued, to be despaired, to encounter a planned genocide. If I have to say in other words, sin 
dehumanizes. In other words, sin corrupts our call as image bearers. Sin produces shame. And if we're honest in this room right now, you and I all wrestle with the shame in our suffering. This is not true. What is shame? Ed Welch says, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or a something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. We even see this in Genesis chapter 3. After the fall, what do Adam and Eve do? They hide, they cover, they run, for they realize that they were naked. See, for the Jews, this persecution, this suffering brought them shame. What we know about the Jewish nation, if you know anything about their national identity, it was built on honor. But as they become scattered uh, from their homeland, separated from their people, exiled, their honor is now in shame. I want y'all to feel the weight of this text. I want y'all to experience what the Jewish nation is going through right now. I'm not just talking grammatical, historical, but I'm talking about the raw emotion that you're seeing in Esther chapter 3, the suffering, the persecution, the shame of it all. Because if we're honest with ourselves right now, you and I can relate to the Jewish nation. In what ways are you in anguish today? In what ways are you feeling outcasted? In what ways are you feeling hopeless? In what ways do you feel ashamed? Because there's not a single person in this room that that's not going through this. But in these moments, know that God speaks. See, because just as God was with his people in persecution, so he is with you. God doesn't give us Snapchat-type conversations. God comforts and he speaks into your shame. God will graciously unlock the closet you've been hiding from others so that he may intimately know you more. We have help during our darkest times of need. That is our hope. Our second point. Read verse 2 through 4 with me. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's commands? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. So what's happening now as Haman is the second in command. He wants everyone to submit and bow down to him. But what happens? Mordecai doesn't submit to Haman. Mordecai would rebel. He, and what this rebellion would do is it would grab the attention of the royal officials. So what we're seeing here is, is, is a civil disobedience of the king's law. 
And him not bowing down, Mordecai not submitting to Haman, had everything to do with his Jewish identity. Now, scholars, uh, they aren't exactly sure of why he didn't submit, but a Greek version of this text in Esther 3 explicitly says that Mordecai refused to bow down so he might not give the glory to man due to the glory of God. In this dark period of suffering and shame, the Jews under Persian rule desperately needed someone that was going to stand for them. And God put Esther and Mordecai just where they needed to be to bring about his salvation. Meaning this, hope in your suffering does not begin from the eradicating of suffering itself, but only when you realize that there is someone with you in the suffering. Because there is nowhere in Scripture that says your suffering will disappear on present earth. In fact, Scripture would argue that you will suffer because you are in Him. But the hope in your suffering, the hope in your persecution, the hope in your shame is this. God is in the background. God is in the background. God's not a deadbeat. God's not going to not be there. God's going to show up. And his time is perfect. Read verse 7 with me as the proof in this context. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast a poor in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the the month of Adar. What's happening is that Haman gets enraged at Mordecai, so he decides to cast lots. Now, casting lots, all it is is it was a method to determine the will of God. Um, so what, uh, what prophets would do is they would uh, get sticks with markings and stones with symbols, and they would kind of throw it into this small area. And as they throw it into this small area, um, it would kind of like discern the will of God. Uh, you want to think about it as kind of like a Ouija board, if you will. Right? But what happens uh, as, a, as, as Haman sets lots um, and he throws it on to the floor, Haman, what he's doing is he's using this method of determining the will of God to control the fate of the Jews. What Haman is doing is utter blasphemy. He's doing what's of God and glory, but for evil and himself. But God shows up. See, because Haman, in verse 7, he casted lots in the first month, but the lots fall on the 12th. Meaning it would be just enough time for Mordecai and Esther to save his people, which we see later in the book of Esther. What does this tell us, church? It tells us that our hope is knowing that God is always in the background and you can trust in that. Something I'm looking forward to one day is fatherhood. And one of the moments in particular I'm looking forward to is watching my child take their very first steps. 
But to get to these steps, there's actually a process to help an infant walk. It begins with sitting. Then it, be- then it continues with crawling. And then there's a standing. And then you got to help them walk. And then they take their first steps, and then they finally begin to walk. Now, in this process, an infant has no audible way of really calling me to grab me to say, oh, daddy, I need some help right now. There's no way of a child to, that's how babies talk, Uh, but there's no way for a a child to really do that. And at the same time, there's no real uh, audible way for me to give step-by-step direction in a way that an an infant would comprehend. See, as a father, all I can do is baby-proof the surroundings. All I can do is kind of guide them when they need. I can pick them up when they fall, and I can encourage them when they're doing something right. See, at the same, as the same way, God the Father, he may not seem explicitly present in your suffering, but know that he is guiding. Know that God is protecting Know that God is walking with his sons and daughters in the background just as God is protecting Esther, Mordecai, and the Jewish nation. Listen, church, things might look bleak. There might be this cloud of brokenness, but God is doing something in it. He is doing something in your suffering. He is speaking loudly in your shame. He is an author. He is the perfecter of your faith. And best believe that he is shaping you as we speak. How does God show us this hope in the background? It's not through Mordecai. And it's not through Esther. Because they're not the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. No, no, no. We need someone someone far, far greater, and leads us to the third point, the honor. Because see, centuries later, way after the rule of Queen Esther and Mordecai, there is going to be someone who receives the ultimate persecution. There is going to be someone greater who is also hated by men in high rankings, just like Haman, and he would suffer the most pain and experience the ultimate alienation, and he would experience the ultimate shame. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, And being found in appearance as a man, Jesus Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted Christ to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. See, just as Esther goes from orphan to royalty and Mordecai goes from refugee to ruler, Jesus Christ is transformed from begotten to risen. Jesus Christ goes from outcast to the highest honor King Jesus, and that his glory was the cross. It was his highest honor, and thus 
through it, God works in the background of his suffering, and he used it accordingly to his plan. He used the darkest brokenness to bring about ultimate honor and ultimate glory. See, no one understands the pain of persecution more than Jesus. What does that mean for us right now? Well, if Christ's suffering was not in vain and his suffering was meant for glory, it means that our suffering, our persecution, our shame in the moment, in the right now, in the daily walk that we're walking, it is certainly not in vain. In fact, God is working in you the most in your suffering. No, you're not being punished for a past deed. No, you're not disqualified in the game of life. No, this isn't going to kill you. Why? Because Christ took the punishment. Christ took the disqualification. Christ took the death that you and I deserved. And just as a shame led to honor in Christ, as we are, as Ephesians, the book of Ephesians says, in him, your shame will lead to honor. How does that play for us today? The truth, the truth that we're seeing right now, this gospel truth of suffering unto glory, shame unto honor, death to life. This truth, what it does is it allows us to come in faith and trust. It allows us to come in faith and trust. Because see, if we remember this gospel truth, what it does is it makes us more trusting that if Christ did these things, these things, excuse me, and is now honored, uh, we too can walk in him to the day we will be fully honored in the presence of him. In other words, is this. Uh, suffering, persecution, our shame, they aren't pass or fail tests. No. Suffering are, are, are moments that allow us to know him more. It's in the suffering that we are to trust and to find him more presently working in our lives. It means that in our suffering, we don't have to worry about, am I going to pass or fail this? But rather, how is God working in it for his glory and my good? That means that some of the most darkest things in our lives are being used for his glory. And I know some of us may not be there just yet, and that's okay. But what I can tell you is that it will be. See, I know I can stand to you as a testament to this. God used the worst in my life, but he used it for good. And he most certainly will do that in you. I'll close with this. One of the primary purposes uh, for the book of Esther is the establishment of this annual celebration is known as Purim. 
Purim is a celebration of joy, and what it does is a reminder uh, of the survival of the Jewish people for thousands of years in spite of persecution and hardship, right? Uh, That's what we see in the book of Esther, Uh, uh, this idea of a celebration, a gathering of the Jewish nation. But what's interesting that in Esther, if it were not for the suffering, the celebration does not happen. If not for Christ's suffering, our celebration does not happen. So know that we too, you and I, we can celebrate with the gathering of sinners in need of the gospel. That you and I can come broken together just as we are. And we can, uh, we can really preach uh, uh, what Paul is saying, that we are afflicted in every way, uh, not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Church, if this is your first time here, if this is your hundredth time here, Be reminded that we can come and worship weekly to also celebrate from a great deliverance. You and I can come in community knowing that this is not an art museum for saints, but a hospital for the sick with full access to a healer. Will you remember that this morning? Join me in prayer.